Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a career development podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, looking to change your perspective, or just rediscover your why. I'm your host, Harsha Borolesa, and this podcast came about from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. In each episode, I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them about their career journey, their real life experiences, and to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you to take a fresh look at your career and assist you on your path to a more successful and fulfilling career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. You need to be clear about your message and what it is you want people you're connecting with to do. I was using the application process as a sort of research project to figure out what I wanted to do. You don't need to think about your career every day and your next job every day, but it should be something you pay attention to from time to time. You got to take charge of your own career. You got to figure it out for yourself. Nobody's going to do it for you. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Mac Pritchard. Welcome, Mac. Thank you for having me, Harsha. It's a pleasure to be here. No, it's, it's my complete pleasure, Mac. Thanks so much. Before we begin, I, w- I just wanted to say a huge thanks to the show's listeners, viewers, and guests. The podcast has passed 3,000 downloads, and the YouTube channel has over 6,000 views, which is all down to your support. Please like, subscribe, or comment if you're enjoying the content. But back to the episode. Mac Pritchard is a communication strategist and career expert based in Portland, Oregon. He is the founder and publisher of Mac's List, where he writes regularly about job hunting and hosts the Find Your Dream Job podcast. He also owns and operates Pritchard Communications, a public relations agency that serves nonprofits, public agencies, and foundations across the United States. Prior to running his own business, Mac had many years' experience working in politics, government, and nonprofits. He has a degree in political science from the University of Iowa and a master's in public administration from the Harvard Kennedy School. He is the author of two books land your dream job anywhere, and land your dream job in Portland and beyond. When he's not hard at work, Mac can be found watching classic movies, taking photos during his travels, or walking around Lad's Edition with his wife, Chris, and Waimarana, Kai. Welcome, Mac. Well, thank you again. I'm really looking forward to our conversation, Harsha. That's great, Mac. So, Mac, as I told you, I'm a big fan of the arts. So is there a performer, song, book, or film which you'd like to share with our listeners? And it doesn't have to be obscure in any way. A movie that made a big impact on me was one I saw when I was in grade school. It's called The Candidate, and it stars uh, an American actor, Robert Redford, who was quite famous in the 60s and 70s. And it tells the story of a political campaign in California in 1972. And it provides a behind the scenes peek of how uh, campaigns operated in those days with the emphasis on television advertising and and getting out a, a message. And I saw this movie, Harsha, when I was 12, and I was so taken with it that I sat through it twice. And I grew up, and I know we're going to talk about this in the state in the United States, Iowa, where 
presidential politics is very common uh, because of uh, something called the Iowa caucuses. And I watched that film and I thought, boy, that's something I'd like to do one day. And many years, and I did go on to work in political campaigns, uh, both in Iowa and Massachusetts and, and elsewhere. I studied, as you mentioned, at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. I took a class uh, called To Be a Politician. It was taught by former member of parliament, Shirley Williams, who was teaching at Harvard. And our first homework assignment was to watch the candidate. And I thought, I am in the right place. So the, the movies and books and people we meet and talk with along the way can make a huge difference, not only in our careers, but in shaping our lives. And I think that's a great example of one that made a difference in my life. Oh, I just love that story, Mike. I haven't actually watched The Candidate, but I'm very aware, obviously, of Robert Redford and, and the movie. And I just like that whole idea of um, getting interested in service and uh, working essentially with the public and for the public. Obviously, you studied polit- politics at the University of Iowa, and now we know why, why you did that. But how, how was that experience? And did you ever take part in the famous Iowa caucuses? I did take part in the caucuses. And I was interested in politics before I saw the candidate. It was something growing up in grade school. I, you were aware of, of uh, presidential campaigns because of the Iowa caucuses. And it's the first uh, election in the nation in the United States if you're running for president. So it, it has a disproportionate influence on the election campaign. And one of the benefits of it is that uh, the candidates actually come to Iowa and you can see them. So when I was in high school uh, during the 1976 race, I skipped classes. I would go to union halls and uh, community centers and there would be somebody running for president and maybe 15 or 20 people in the room. So it was easy to connect with candidates and, and shake their hand and talk to them. It's an experience that people in other states generally don't have. The other example, of course, is New Hampshire, uh, which has a race right after Iowa. And because of that, uh, presidential campaigns and electoral campaigns seemed like an everyday event to me. And when I was at Iowa, I, uh, the university there, I did uh, study uh, political science. I was most interested, Harsha, in Latin American studies. I was very interested in human rights issues Uh, at the time. And when I finished at Iowa, I did work on a congressional race. It was a statewide campaign for an incumbent U.S. senator. And this is a long time ago. It was 1980. We lost, uh, I was working for a Democrat, the fellow who won, uh, Charles Grassley, Chuck Grassley, he is still in office, (laughs) (laughs) which tells you something about the power of incumbency, uh, especially in the United States, but it certainly applies elsewhere. There was a great experience working on that race. And some of the uh, ideas and skills that I applied there, I I did pick up at the university, but there's no substitute for actually volunteering or getting paid to work on a campaign. And the skills you learn can be very useful later in your career. It It was a great introduction to me to entrepreneurship. And I know we're going to talk more about that later. No, I, I just love that that point about um, sort of getting involved because you know whether you're working in the the private sector or the the nonprofit or government sector, I think it's a lot of it is about taking action. And I think until you uh, experiment and start working on something, you never you, you can understand the theory or the idea of it 
or have an expectation of what it's going to be like. But actually, until you get your hands dirty, you just have no idea, A, whether you'll enjoy it or B, you'll be any good at it. So I just love the fact that you tried and, and, and you got out there and you got to meet the public. And, and I love this whole idea of politics because I think, you know, it's, it's sort of dealing with the public and really un- trying to understand what it is, uh, you know, empathize with them. If you can strike a chord with them, that makes such a difference, doesn't it? It does. And when you're working in a field position in a campaign, you have to talk to voters and you have to learn how to listen and uh, make a point very quickly. The congressional race I worked on right after graduating from the University of Iowa, my job was to knock on doors and ask the people I spoke with to support our candidate uh, and to sign a petition and ask for money to support the campaign. And so every night I would go out and along with a team of people and, and we'd knock typically on 70 to 90 doors and talk to 40 or 50 people uh, and persuade five or 10, maybe 15 to give us money or sign a petition. And when you do that night after night, you get good at listening to people, reading people quickly and understanding what, what matters to them and engaging them in a positive, constructive way. If you don't get good at it, you, you give up after a week because <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough job, but it's a great set of skills to have. And people who do it well uh, are successful not only in election campaigns, but those skills can transfer to so many different other careers. And it's interesting to talk about that, Matt, because the, the book I referenced based on the podcast is Influenced by Robert Cialdini. Uh, I don't know whether you've come across that, but I haven't. Just, okay, it's, it's, a, it's a great book, and it, it just talks about the ways that people can influence people. But you've probably picked up those skills by just practice. And I just love that whole idea of um, you, know, you connecting with people and trying to – I don't think you can manipulate people because ultimately your message is your message. But I think there's definitely a way of framing it in a particular way. And I, and I think that leads nicely on to this whole idea of communication and messaging, because I think, and, and obviously public service, because I think that's been quite a common thread in your career, this whole idea of communication. You've been a spokesman for a number of different um, organizations and campaigns. So what made you interested in communication? I always enjoyed writing. Service was an important value for my family. My mother was involved. She was a school teacher, but she was involved in her local union bargaining unit. And in my family, I I had role models who were uh, good writers and editors. I had, my, I had a grandfather who worked, uh, my grandfather worked uh, as the editor-in-chief of the publishing company. His dad had written a number of textbooks. He had been a college professor. Uh, so uh, in writing was something that just came naturally to me. It takes practice and uh, in, instruction to, to get really good at it, uh, but it was something I was drawn to. And working in communications for nonprofits and, and elected officials and public agencies was a way to, to put my communication skills to use and act on my interest in being of service to others. So when I got out of college, Harsha, I wanted to do three things. I wanted to get paid to write. I wanted to work on election campaigns and I wanted to do human rights advocacy in Latin America. And I was fortunate in the next uh, six or seven years to be able to do all three of those things. I worked on the U.S. Senate race I mentioned earlier. And when that ended, I went to Washington, D.C., and I worked for a human rights group that 
worked with media and that's where I learned my media relations skills and got to practice them. And that led to a position with another human rights organization in, in Boston, uh, where we took members of Congress and other policymakers on fact-finding trips to Central America. So I want to go back to an earlier point you made about the importance of experience and volunteering. I got that position in Washington, D.C. with the Human Rights Group because I'd done an internship in college and uh, I spent a semester uh, as a student working for this organization. And that experience showed me that uh, there was this whole other world out there and it was challenging. And uh, I'm not going to say I was ex- an expert from the start. It opened a door and showed me that I, I, what things were possible and that I fit into that world. So I want to second your point about the importance of volunteering or getting your hands dirty or, or doing an internship. Uh, when you have these experiences, it not only shows you what's possible, but as you mentioned earlier, sometimes you try these things and you think, well, this isn't what I want to do. Uh, I want to do something else instead. But in my case, it was something I wanted to do. And it opened a door for me that might not have happened uh, if I hadn't had that experience. And I just love that point, just building from that, this whole idea of limiting beliefs, because I think that uh, so many of us uh, think we're maybe not good enough or we can't do things. And sometimes it's the narcissists who have no talent, but yeah. they, have, they think, oh, I, I can do anything. And they're the ones who get ahead. Many of our listeners are out there thinking, I, I'm not sure if I should take that job or I'm not good enough. It's important just to try and forget about that and just give yourself the permission to try. Um, and I think failure, unfortunately, th- that happens in life. We, we all fail. But I think it's, it, you shouldn't get weighed down and burdened by failure. If you can always reframe it and say, okay, I tried, I learned something, and then hopefully the next time I do it, I'll be better. Because if you stop after that first failure, then um, that's quite sad in, in a way, isn't it? It is sad because failure is, is natural. It happens to the most successful people. And when it does happen, it's, it's discouraging uh, and sometimes depressing. But then you have to think, well, what did I learn from this experience and what do I need to do differently? About 15 years ago, I was elected as an alternate delegate to the Democratic National Convention. Um, this was in 2004. And uh, from Oregon, and this was when John Kerry was nominated and we went to Boston and uh, for the convention, and it was in a, a large public place. And the as an alternate, I was not allowed on the floor. I didn't have the proper credentials. And I remember that first night going over with all my friends from Oregon and the delegation and getting up in the nosebleed seats up into the third tier and looking down and seeing all these distant. Um, it, it was it was very discouraging. So I, I wallowed in misery for about 10 minutes, Harsha. And then I thought, well, how do I get down on the floor? So I went down to the ground floor and watched all the entrances. And then uh, there was one that wasn't very well watched. And I got inside um, and rejoined the Oregon delegation, which was great for one night. But the, the next day, I was on the bus with another Oregon delegate. And candidly, she was not a popular person. She had a disagreeable personality and most people didn't talk to her, but I, I'll talk to anyone and she had never been disagreeable with me. And I was complaining about saying, well, how discouraging it felt because I, I couldn't get on the floor. Well, she had been to every Democratic National Convention since 1968. Again, this is 2004. And nobody talked to her. 
but she explained to me all the different ways people had figured out how to sneak onto the floor. And in this case, in 04, it was pretty simple. We had these plastic sleeves with cards. All you had to do was convince someone who had the proper credential to trade with you. You'd get on the floor with their showing their credential. There were no photographs on them. And then someone in the delegation would go back and bring their proper credential to them, and then they could get on the floor. So why do I tell this story? Two reasons. One, first, you have that defeat, that discouragement. What are you going to do about it? And then second, uh, you never know where you're going to learn some insight or, or skill or technique uh, can come from the most unexpected places. And it was a five-day event. So I use this technique I learned from this person no one else would talk to <laughs> to get on the, the floor every night. And, and I taught it to others. And by the end of the week, um, they had made me a, an assistant whip, which meant my job was to eject people from the floor who didn't have the proper credentials. So talk to everybody. And when you have a, a, a setback, ask yourself, what can you do about it? I just love that story. And by, by the way, Mike, were you there for a, a Barack Obama's uh, speech? Uh, did, you, did you witness that in person? I, I was. And we were fortunate uh, in 2004, Oregon was a, a swing state, they're called, a place where the electoral votes were in common, in uh, competition rather. So Iowa was also a swing state and Iowa had been good to Obama. We were right behind the Iowa delegation. Uh, so we were second back. And it was it was great to be, you know, uh, 15, 20 rows away and watch that speech. Uh, oh, wow. And Matt, moving on from that. Now, obviously, you had a, a good run with jobs uh, after college. And I think the volunteering and your networking, they helped you. you. You mentioned to me that in your mid-20s, you had a little difficult spell, but you managed to turn it around after your what you know, kind wife introduced you to one of her colleagues in the career services of a local university. Absolutely. I was living in Boston and my wife, Chris, was working at Northeastern University in the editorial department there. And I had had three great jobs in a row. Arsha, I got out of the University of Iowa. I worked on this U.S. Senate race. I found that job through an advertisement in a local newspaper. Again, this was 1980 and that's how <laughs> jobs were advertised. Um, then I had a position in Washington, D.C., uh, working with national and international media, uh, and I got that job through a college internship. My third position just kind of fell into my lap. I was leaving the position in Washington, D.C., and there was a going away party for me that my uh, colleagues were, were uh, hosting. And nobody told me to do this, but I just started inviting uh, friends and colleagues, professional acquaintances to the party and asking them, uh, do you know of any openings? And, uh, and, and I learned about a position in, in Boston. So it came through word of mouth through using my, my professional network. That's it. And that was a great job. It lasted uh, four plus years. Uh, we took members of Congress on fact-finding trips to El Salvador and Nicaragua my job was to help with the logistics. And we also, I also did research and um, communications for the organization, but it ended. And so I thought, Harsha, the, the next job will just fall in my lap. And I sent out dozens of applications in response to newspaper ads. Again, this was the 1980s. Today, I, I would have been looking at uh, internet job boards. And I actually got responses 
but, and I had interviews, but I never got an offer. I can see now that the challenge was I wasn't clear about what I wanted to do. So I would make it to the first or sometimes even the second round, but my uncertainty about my goals made me a less attractive candidate uh, when compared to somebody who knew that they wanted to either a be the, the communication officer at a local museum or write grants for a local environmental nonprofit. These were the kinds of jobs I was applying for. So I actually cashed my last unemployment check and that takes um, uh, six months. It was, it was painful. And I talked with a career services advisor at Northeastern University, agreed to see me. And she emphasized the importance of setting goals and tapping into your professional network. So I, I thought to myself, what do I want to do next? I wanted to stay in Boston. I wanted to work in politics and government, and I wanted to use my communication skills. That led me to have a series of conversations with people who did that kind of work in Boston. And those conversations helped me figure out how to present myself and confirm that this was indeed a goal I wanted to chase. And I was excited about it. And it led to a position as the first public information officer for Boston's Big Dig project, which was a huge public works project in Massachusetts at the time. Uh, and, and in fact, was the largest public works project in America for a number of years. And I got that job after about four to five weeks of having those conversations, exploring that goal, confirming that it was indeed what I wanted. And it was a position that was never advertised. It was a great introduction to Massachusetts politics. And people afterwards said, well, I didn't know that job was open. How'd you get that job? Uh, and it wasn't because I had great connections or I was somebody's nephew or, um, and people do get jobs in Massachusetts politics because they're related to somebody. <laughs> but uh, it was because I was clear about what I wanted, what I offered. And I spent time building relationships with people in the world and in the uh, sector that I targeted. And that's how I found out about a job that was never posted. And it was also because the insights I got from those conversations helped me become a very competitive uh, candidate. I knew what the employer needed and knew how to present myself. And I, I think that's a great story. And I think there's so many interesting points that come out of that. I think this whole idea of setting goals, because I think if you are clear on what it is you're looking for, then actually I think the um, interviewer has this feeling of comfort that they think, okay, this uh, guy or girl really knows what they want. They're very clear. And if I give them the job that they will um, you know, execute properly. And then it's this whole idea of understanding yourself, because sometimes people do jobs not for the right reasons. Maybe it's the money or the position or the status. But actually, if you can um, connect uh, the job with your values and your purpose, that makes such a difference, because then it's not actually like work. Um, and, and, and then this whole idea of managing failure, because I think in life, so many times we have adversity and actually if you can figure out a way of managing failure and not being burdened by it or weighed down and just moving forward then I think you have a huge uh, power because I think so many people that have one setback and they think oh this isn't for me but actually I suppose it's like um, with with podcasting we we send out 
thousands of invitations to people and you're always hoping your top 10 guests are going to come through. Not that I'm saying you're not on the top 10, Mac, but <laughs> you were right up there. <laughs> but, but you know how it is. You're, you're thinking, yeah. um, but you get rejected. And I think you just have to be thick skinned. And but But you never know. Sometimes a random uh, email or a, a, a yesterday I followed, I, I, I liked somebody's um, who, who I, who I quite liked on Twitter. I just liked one of their um, tweets and I, I don't know this person at all. And then she, they start following me back. And now how random is that? So if you don't do, take action, nothing happens, but no, I just, I just love that. Um, and, and then actually just moving on to sort of communication and, and messaging, because I think those are such important skills to have for a successful career, because I think it's about presenting yourself and not in a insincere way, but actually presenting yourself in the best light. How have they helped you? Well, good writers and speakers know what they want to say and they know what they want the reader or the listener to do. They're clear about their call, call to action. And I think people who are successful in their careers know what they want and they know what the steps they need to take in order to make that happen so they know what to ask for. And I, I do want to second your point, Arsha, about the importance of, of knowing what you want. In, in my case, in my 20s, I was applying for jobs that I could do or I thought that were interesting. And I was using the application process as a sort of research project to figure out what I wanted to do. It's a very common error. I talk to job seekers now be, regularly because I I run uh, this online job board and career hub, maxlist.org. And so if you want to avoid that error, you, like a good communicator, you need to be clear about your message and what it is you, you want people you're connecting with to do. And as a job seeker or just in your career in general, when you're clear about your goals, that helps you narrow the, your focus to the positions that you're most excited about. Because as, as you said a, a moment ago, employers can tell, and, and they're talking to two or three candidates typically, and the one who is not only excited about the position, but shows that it, how it fits into their career plans, and that they're committed to this work and the organization, and they're going to be there for a couple of years, and can show how it fits into their uh, career plans, they're going to have a huge advantage over somebody who is interested, could do the job, is open to it wants to learn more about it. So save yourself the trouble, get clear about what you want before you send out your applications. Be clear about the employers, whether it's private companies or nonprofits or public agencies where you want to work. Because uh, when you have that target list and you have a clear goal for the position that you want, your search not only gets easier, you're going to have a much more rewarding career in the long run. I just love that point, man. No, that's fantastic. And and actually sort of moving on from sort of the communication, obviously th this helped you um, create Max Lists and also Pritchard Communications. So what was it like to uh, sort of take the plunge and start working for yourself um, on these two projects? It was challenging at first. And I started the public relations company, Pritchard Communications, 15 years ago. Full disclosure, I kept my day job. So I worked half time at my day job and half time running the public relations firm. And I, uh, I actually had a separate office where I would go to do the PR work uh, Wednesday afternoons through Fridays. 
I did that for just over a year and, and the experience showed me that it felt natural and uh, it was something I was excited to do. I wasn't sure about it at first. And so I, I would say to listeners who are thinking about self-employment, try a side hustle for a while, uh, whether it's on weekends or evenings uh, or work uh, part-time at a, at a current day job and, and do the business uh, a day or two a week. You'll figure out within a year whether it, it's something you want to do and whether you're excited about it. As I built the company, I a lot of it felt familiar to me. And it was uh, because I had to go out and find an office, hire someone, uh, set up systems, find customers, make, uh, make deals, and deliver product. It did feel familiar. And it was because I think of my political campaign experience. I by that time had worked on more than a dozen statewide or, or presidential or local races. During those campaigns, I'd often had to set up an office, hire people, help the candidate raise money, get clear about our messages and, and what we offered and why we were different. And I knew on election night, whether we had a sale or not, because by the time the poll closed, we either won or we lost. That experience is very similar to starting your own business. And it's another example of, of good transferable skills. MaxList, the, the job board, I started sharing job postings informally uh, in 2001 when I went through a job change. And I did it to be of service to my network because I'd learned through uh, two periods of unemployment. I not only had one in my 20s, but another one in my 30s, how important it was not only to learn job search skills, but to stay in touch with your professional colleagues. And my way of doing that was to share the job postings that I think we all get. You know, we all have friends who send us announcements. I got more than most, but I, I, it wasn't a huge number at first. But I did that for years before I turned it into a business because I wasn't sure if people would pay me to put their postings on a website. What I did inadvertently was I created a community of people who came to depend on this information. And that audience was valuable to employers. They wanted to get in front of them. They wanted their postings to be there. MaxList at first was kind of a side business, but today it employs five people and the, the public relations company employs five as well. Fantastic. And I, I just love that story. And I think it's a really nice thread through your life, Mike, this whole idea of service and, and giving back. Because I think that if if you can think about whatever work you're doing as adding value or providing something to somebody else, I think that makes such a difference rather than just thinking about the money or building something. I think it's so powerful, the whole, this whole idea of, of service and doing something for others. Now, for full disclosure, Mac kindly included me on his top career podcast list for 2022. Now, I did not invite him onto the show purely because of that. That would be completely wrong. But obviously, we have a mutual friend in Tammy Gulalob, who I absolutely love Tammy, and she's a huge supporter of mine and of the show. But I'm completely intrigued uh, to learn, how do you find me as I'm in London and you're in Portland? We update the annual career podcast guide every year, and we're always on the lookout for new shows. We find people through LinkedIn and Twitter and, and Facebook. I think you popped up in my Twitter feed, but it, it's possible Tammy told me about you as well. So <laughs> thank you, I, thank you Tammy. My, yeah, my, my memory gets a little fuzzy. 
but you know, candidly, I I've got a, a Google Doc, and as I see career-related podcasts, either on Twitter, on social media, or I often have former guests who've been on my show, and Tammy is one of them, recommend someone. I'll just pop the name in the file, and then we publish our guide typically in the spring. The new edition is coming out coincidentally next week in March. We, we take a look at those that list and listen to the shows. And we have other criteria too. You've got to be focused on, on job search and careers. You have to have uh, at least eight episodes in the previous 12 months. And it's got to be, you know, obviously a valuable, useful show, well-produced. So that, that, that's how I found you, Harsha. And, and uh, I really appreciate the, the good work you're doing on your show. And the, I, particularly the, the, the in-depthness of the uh, conversations. I mean, you really, many shows are, will run 15 or 20 minutes, and that's good. Sometimes we just don't have time for a long show. But I, the long-form conversations that you have with your guests, I think, are invaluable. Well, uh, th- thank you so so much, Mike. That's that's very kind of you, and, and obviously, thank you once again for including me on the list. And uh, j- just for our listeners, all the um, uh, the details about Mike's list and all the valuable work he's doing with his podcast, they will be in the show notes. In terms of writing, obviously, you've written a couple of books: uh, "Land Your Dream Job Anywhere" and "Land Your Dream Job in Portland and Beyond." Would you like to give an overview of them to our listeners? Absolutely. Uh, we, I, I should step back and our website, maxlist.org, at the heart of it is a job board. And we publish positions in two states here in the US, Oregon and Washington, that are both in the Pacific Northwest. You'll typically find eight or 900 jobs on the job board in a typical month. I will be the first to tell you that if all you're doing is looking at job boards, you're making your search so much harder. You got to learn job search skills. And so what distinguishes our site from uh, the many good other job boards out there is we invest a lot of effort in educational materials. So you'll find a section of our website called Learn uh, that has hundreds of blog posts, uh, dozens of of guides. Uh, I host a weekly podcast where I interview a different job search expert every year. I've been doing it, or every, every Wednesday, I've been doing it for six years, and the books are part of that educational effort. So we have one that's focused on Portland that has lots of hyper-local resources and quotes from local experts here in Oregon. And then we have a national book because our site attracts people, a um, large number of people from outside the Pacific Northwest. About 85% of our podcast downloads uh, come from outside these two states, and 30% are overseas, largely Canada, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. So we wanted to have a book that would would serve that audience as well. And both books take people through all the steps involved in looking for work and having a satisfying career, you know, getting clear about your goals, identifying target companies, uh, updating and your resume, paying attention to your cover letter, getting ready for job interviews, negotiating offers when they come and accepting them. And then thinking about your career and your, not just during your job search, but throughout your working life. Too many people make the mistake. Uh, and I, I did this as well thinking, Oh, my job search is over. I don't have to worry about my, my career. Now I'll, I'll do deal with that in, in the next four or five years. And, 
you, you, you want to avoid that because you're, most of us are going to be in the workplace for 40 years and you don't need to think about your career every day in your next job every day, but it should be something you pay attention to from time to time. One of the best ways to do that, and both books go into this, is paying attention to networking, not only when you're looking for work, but being of service to others uh, who might need help with your job, their own job searches, or getting involved in professional organizations in your sector as a volunteer or board member. Because when you do those things, you're, you're creating relationships and you're tapping into something that is uh, really important in, during hiring, which is the power of referrals, because people hire people they know, like, and trust, or people who are recommended to them by people who know they know, like, and trust. So both books will take you through both of those processes. The Portland book gets really uh, granular about the Portland scene, and it's been very popular here, but the national book, I think, would be of interest uh, to people outside the United States as well. Hey, fantastic. And yeah, we'll, we'll put um, obviously those details on the, uh, in the show notes as well. But, but I think there are a couple of really interesting points there. I think um, there's this whole idea of you always need to be sort of cognizant of how your career is progressing. And maybe um, it's worthwhile, uh, even if you're not looking for a job, updating your CV. Because then I think you can see how, you know, whatever it is you're doing, uh, how that uh, represents itself on, on a CV and in terms of how you market yourself to the world. Because it could be that maybe those projects are not really uh, adding as much value as, as you'd like. And then if you know that, you can sort of pivot or change your course at your current job. Um, but but also, I think um, sometimes if you're feeling um, a, a bit down, I think looking at your CV and not in a narcissistic way, but you know, just thinking about the experience I've had, the qualifications I've got, I think that helps you to almost break out of negativity if you're going through a lull, that you, it should, tells yourself, wow, I do have good qualifications, I do have good experience. And then, and then I also think this point about networking, as you're saying, always, if you can be of service and build these relationships, then um, when push comes to shove, then you've all already got that good capital uh, with, with other people. Um, don't, don't you think so, Mac? I do. And doing, uh, whether it's volunteering at a professional association, posting occasionally on your LinkedIn page, or finding other ways to, to stay connected with your professional contacts, when you do that on a consistent and regular basis, not just when you're looking for work, but throughout your career, you're not only going to make valuable connections, uh, you're going to get positive feedback as well to your point about thinking about the accomplishments you add to your CV. When you do volunteer or people engage with you on LinkedIn about information you're sharing, it demonstrates that you're part of a, an important part and valuable part of, of, a, of your professional community. And that's going to be invaluable to you when it is time to, to look for work, but it needs to be a career long habit. I love that point about, you know, we, we, we tend to like to work with people we like, or, um, you know, try and get those people um, on board in our organizations, uh, obviously, if they have the right skills. And I think it's that whole idea of how do you form these relationships with people? Uh, I don't think you can get people to like you. But I think if you can find things that you have in common with them, I think it makes it much easier to work with people. What do you think, Mike? I agree. And I think it's also important for everybody to understand how hiring works. The hiring manager is thinking about the risk of a bad 
choice. It's not good for the candidate. It's not good for the company. So how do hiring managers reduce that risk? Referrals are a really important part of that. So that's why hiring managers turn to employees for suggestions. They turn to professional colleagues. If you reflect on it, we've all had this experience where we're hiring or we're part of a committee and there's a pile of resumes and somebody comes into the room and says, you should talk to to John or Mary, because I was on this committee with them, or I worked with them in in this previous position. That's not going to get John or Mary the position, uh, but it probably will get them an interview. We'll certainly get their resume pulled out of the pile. So when you recognize the importance of reducing risk and the power of referrals, your challenge as a job seeker, and, and then throughout your career is how do you tap into that? And one of the best ways to do it is, uh, is through building relationships in your professional world. And you can do that through volunteering, through networking, through taking meetings with others who are looking for advice during their own search. It also helps if you're clear about what you want and, and the, the organizations where you want to work, because that helps you focus your volunteering and your networking energy uh, on the area where you want to build a career for yourself. And actually, that, that's a great point that you made, Mac, about reducing risk. You should be working in finance, Mac, about risk reduction, <laughs> risk officer, because yeah, that it's so true in life, actually. I think as human beings, it, it's not about the benefits sometimes. It's really about yeah. avoiding pain, um, avoiding risk, and actually avoiding look, looking uh, foolish, because you just don't want to be that person who hires somebody who's a disaster. So I just love that point about um, you know, put yourself in the shoes of the hiring manager and think, look, he just wants to make a choice. Um, give him every reason to hire you. And if there are any things that you know, potentially are iffy, provide explanations. Because, look, we've all had periods, as you say, of unemployment or things not going quite uh, as we want. But if you can provide sensible explanations and actually you, you can seem like a stand-up person uh, and then he feels, okay, this person is not going to let me down. But also I think having that a good attitude because somebody once told me that what a lot of hiring managers are also looking for is just having somebody who has a can-do approach. And if there are problems or something new turns up, they just want to have somebody that they can think, okay, he may he or she may not know what to do, but they'll actually put the effort in to figure things out. I mean, what, what do you think, Mike? I think your point about problems is is so important because employers hire people to solve problems and you need to recognize that and you need to explore that in when you do have a job interview uh, with a hiring manager so it's good to express your enthusiasm about the position it's good to talk about your qualifications and your skills but if you want to distinguish yourself from your competitors the other candidates who are, are getting interviews or have set in uh, resumes, one of the best ways to do that is to ask uh, the hiring manager what's keeping him or her up at night. The question I always encourage job seekers to ask in an interview you know, toward the end of the conversation when it's your chance to, to ask questions is to say to the manager, if I'm fortunate enough to get this job and you and I are sitting down in a year's time, we're doing our, my annual evaluation, what are the three things you want me to tell you I've done for you? And when you ask that question, a couple of things happen. The manager will always sit back and pause, and then they'll reflect 
And they'll tell you about one or two things that are on the job posting, but they're going to tell you about one or two things that aren't. It's some, something that's keeping them up at night, some problem they need uh, help with. And you have an opportunity to reflect back on your own experience and share examples of how you've solved a similar problem. Or you can talk about your ideas for uh, solving that problem. And when you do that, the nature of the conversation changes. It's suddenly you're becoming almost peers because you're working together to solve a problem. You're also probably discussing something uh, that your competitors don't know about. And that's a chance for you to, to stand out. Uh, but you're tapping into this, to your point, uh, about why is there a need for this position at all? It's because there's a problem to be solved. And the more you can demonstrate that you've got the skills and the experience and the insights to solve that problem, the more compelling a candidate you're going to be to that company. I just love that point, Mike. I think that's so powerful because I think you're changing that dynamic from interviewer, interviewee to almost colleagues. And then I think subliminally that person will remember uh, you in a completely different light from the other candidates. So yeah, I think that's a, an amazing point. And, and just going on to say people who are looking um, to develop in their career and get to the next level, because I think you've given some great ideas for people who are looking for jobs. Are there any sort of high level points you think uh, are helpful for people who are, are in their careers? It's going okay, but they just want to advance maybe to the next managerial or the next promotion. I think it goes back to your career goals. What is it that you want and how do you see yourself? What do you see yourself doing in five or 10 or 15 years? And it may be that the promotion that's available to you inside the organization where you work now matches those goals, but maybe they, that promotion doesn't. So I think many of us just default to looking at what's available and that's what they focus on. I would challenge listeners to step back and think about what is it that you want. And remember, most of us will change not just jobs, but careers several times during 40 years in the workplace. And you got to take charge of your own career. You got to figure it out for yourself. Nobody's going to do it for you. Lots of people will help you explore options and possible directions that you want to go, but you've got to tell people what you're interested in. And, uh, and that means you've got to invest time in thinking about what you want and where you want to go and not just take what is available. Don't wait to be picked. Think about, take charge and think about the direction you want to go. No, I, I just completely love that point, Mac. And I think that's very much in tune with what I'm, my, the message I'm trying to get out to people is that, look, you need to take charge. You need to take control of your career. You need to take action. Um, maybe you're not in the situation you want to be now, but actually not doing anything is not going to help you. So you really have to be strategic and take that first step. Maybe it might not be the right step, but at least take that step and, and see what happens. I agree. And I, I find when I talk to job seekers, Arsha, that there are usually two or three ideas that they, they want to explore. Sometimes they're afraid to say them out loud, or they, they think it just is unrealistic, or it's impossible. But I would challenge them to tell others what those positions are, and then find people who've done that work, uh, or doing it now, and go out and talk to them and find out how they got there, what it is they had to do, what uh, obstacles they had to overcome, and 
take all the objections that we all carry around in our heads and share them with the person you're, you're meeting with, not to say, oh, I, I can't do this because of this or that, but what did, turn it into a question. Say, well, what advice would you have for somebody who wants to break into your field and doesn't have experience? How have you seen people do that? What steps did they have to take to, to successfully make that transition? Uh, can you introduce me to that person so I can learn more from them? And when you have those conversations, you'll find out quickly after maybe three or four meetings, if that's something you really want to do. Because we talked about this at the start, sometimes you have a notion uh, that you'd like to make a change and, and uh, try a different job. But then you find out that uh, perhaps after volunteering, that that's not what you want at all. And these kinds of conversations, uh, these informational interviews are a great way to explore a direction, find out if it's indeed something you want to do and build a network uh, in that world, if that's indeed the way you go, that can help you accomplish that goal. And, and I just love that point, Mac, the whole idea of speaking to people, because I think if you can articulate what it is you're looking for, um, that, because there's a huge difference, I think, about thinking about it and actually speaking to somebody, because I think the whole process of actually talking to somebody and try to create a coherent argument, it definitely, I think, forms these connections maybe in your brain or helps you cut through the noise uh, and maybe your expectations of what it is you're looking for. Um, and, and I think that the, adva- the advantage of, say, having uh, a friend, a confidant, or even a career coach, it's very powerful. It's just being able to have a, a conversation where you're not being judged and really explore the um, ideas and uh, thoughts that you have. And you can learn from other people's experience too. If you find somebody who's doing what it is that you think you want to do or that interests you, they've done it. And they can tell you about the challenges they had to overcome. And I find that if you're specific about what you want to get from a meeting like that, almost everybody will make time to talk to you. Often people will say to me, well, I tried uh, reaching out to others. It didn't work. I didn't get a response. Some people will say, no, it's, it's uh, undeniable. But I, I would encourage folks who are having that experience to look at two things. One, are they being specific about what they want? And I, if you're requesting an informational interview like this with somebody, you got to be clear about what you hope to get from the conversation. So avoid um, phrases like, I, I want to pick your brain. Say that if you're looking to find out about how to make a change from being uh, working in supply chain management for uh, an international organization, and instead what you really are interested in doing next is program management for a nonprofit, find somebody who's doing that and say, I'd like to talk to you. Uh, This is my goal that I'm exploring. I'm interested in moving into program management for a nonprofit. You're doing that. I'd like to get 20 to 30 minutes of your time to talk about how you made that transition and the challenges you had to overcome and make it easy for them to say yes, give them a, a link to an online calendar or uh, share specific dates and times when you you could meet or make it clear that you're happy to meet around their schedule and keep that message brief, you know, uh, two or three paragraphs at, at most. So be clear about what you want. And then second, follow up. And, you know, I recommend the rule of three. You send a communication to someone. It's not uncommon for people's email to end up in spam or just get 
it moves to the bottom of the 50 email list. So wait a week, send a follow-up message. And if you don't hear it after the second communication, try one more time, maybe two weeks later. And if you follow that rule of three, I find that uh, three attempts, 90% of the time, you'll get an appointment. But you have to be pers- you have to be clear and you have to be persistent. I, I think that's just such an amazing note to uh, to to end on because I think our, our time is uh, cu- coming uh, to a close. But Mac, just one thing I like to do with my guests: is there a particular a person or um, uh, somebody who's helped in your career or family who's uh, who you'd like to give a shout out to? Um, well, I wish I remembered her name, but I'm very <laughs> grateful to that career services. Uh, advisor at Northeastern University. Uh, it was so gracious of her to meet with me. I'd been out of work for a long time. I was not in a good place mentally. And uh, she was not only gracious, but very constructive. I've also had some great supervisors and ma- bosses along the way. I've learned from all of them. And I'm I'm grateful to the people I work with, both at MaxList and Pritchard Communications. I, I learn from my team every day. And I, I just love that. And you never know who's going to be that person who's going to help you flip things around. And just like this lady at Northeastern, you just need that one conversation. And I, I think you know, I'd like to emphasize to our listeners and the audience or whoever's out there that just keep trying because you just never know where that bit of luck is going to come from. Um, I mean, just like the, the two of us, if I hadn't sent out a random tweet, then you know, we may not be having this conversation so you just never know where your piece of luck is going to come from so just uh, persist it's like the lady at the democratic national convention (laughs) who knew all the ways you could sneak onto the floor who was sitting all by herself on the bus if i hadn't sat down and chatted with her um i never would have made it to the floor perhaps but but just on a side note to the dnc in future mac will not be doing these things (laughs) <laughs> he will be getting on the floor in the right way. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, Mike, th- thank you so much for your time. Um, yeah, absolutely loved our conversation. And uh, yeah, I look forward to catching up with you uh, again in the future. Great. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Harsha. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such an enjoyable interview. If you would like to listen to more episodes, then please consider subscribing to the podcast which is available on your favorite providers and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe and look after yourself. I hope you will join me again in the future.